Whether you drive a car, need a car, or just occasionally bum a ride with friends, you've come to the right place. Join the editors of Consumer Guide Automotive as they break down everything that's going on in the auto world. New car reviews, shopping tips, driving green, electric cars, classic cars, and plenty of great guests. This is the Consumer Guide Car Stuff Podcast. Here's your host, Tom Appel. All right, I am Tom Appel, and this is episode 135 of the Consumer Guide Car Stuff Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. When you get a chance, please check us out at ConsumerGuide.com. While you're there, check out our 2022 Best Buy Picks. This list is an excellent starting place if you were looking for a new car or truck. You will also want to check out our blog for complete reviews of all the vehicles we're driving here at Consumer Guide and a bunch of other fun stuff. And and you can catch up on back episodes of the podcast right there on our homepage. How cool is that? All right, let's see who's online with us today. She is the managing editor of Pickup Truck Plus SUV Talk, and her freelance work can be found all over the internet. Hello, Jill Simonello. Hello, Tom Appel. What's it been, like six weeks since you've been here? It's like six weeks. <laughs> I feel like it. I feel like I've basically been traveling since February. <laughs> well, good to have you back. We, we have enjoyed a nice surge in downloads in, in recent days, so welcome to all of our new <laughs> listeners. Wait, wait, wait. Are you making a correlation between me not being there and downloads? I was not. You can. <laughs> I'm feeling a little bit self-conscious now. No, I was not making that correlation at all. Okay, good. Because I all missed right. you guys. I uh, We missed you too. I, I heard something sad yesterday. Okay. Okay. I wanted to run it past you real quick before we get to Damon. Michelle Krebs, friend of the show, chief analyst at Cox Automotive, said something kind of sad yesterday, and it bummed me out. I was watching an interview with her regarding the supply chain situation, and during that conversation, she referred to new car buyers as affluent. Oh. And, and it kind of bummed me out because it is now at a point in the United States where you are technically affluent or rich if you can afford a new car. This is it's kind of a kind of a sad thing. That is actually a little bit shocking and definitely a lot sad. There's a lot there to, to digest if you think about it. Like, who is our audience then? This is very strange. Yeah, apparently affluent people. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I don't know that I like that. Just yeah. that. I love writing about cars, but that's that's just... It's a very small segment of the population. It is. It is. It's that's what was the context in which she said it? I know you didn't intend to spend a lot of time here, but I missed the interview. Oh, she just referred to them as affluent buyers. She was talking specifically about the supply chain and who it is that can even get a hold of a car right now. So, well, so, you know, that makes a little bit of sense because of the, like the ten, twenty thousand dollar markups that are happening at dealerships. Yeah. Sure. That, that obviously that's exacerbating the situation, obviously. Yeah. All, All right. right. Interesting. All right. Yeah. I won't belabor that, but fascinating. I'm going to have to go find the interview now. Yeah. He's a senior editor here at Consumer Guide, and his new lifestyle podcast, Macrame and Mulch, <laughs> is now available for downloadedgrit.com. Welcome, Damon Bell. <laughs> Those seem like two things that don't go together at all, other than the alliteration. Macrame and Mulch? Yeah. <laughs> well, they totally do. How so? Like mulching, that's very, very earth muffin. And, and then, <laughs> then and macrame is like a hemp fiber thing. I don't know. They seem like they seem very entwined to me. Can so you use mulch to macrame? I doubt that. But what you're saying, Tom, is the Venn diagram of macrame enthusiasts and mulch enthusiasts, I guess. is There's a lot of overlap there. <laughs> Mulch enthusiast. Which reminds me, I got to renew my subscription to Mulch Enthusiast monthly. <laughs> <laughs> Circulation eight. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> hey, I wanted to. So, yeah, what you bring up about Michelle's quote, that is very yeah. interesting. And I'm wondering how much of that is just based on the current supply chain crisis we still seem to find ourselves in. And. You know, yes, new vehicles now, no automakers are producing base models uh, or uh, entry-level vehicles right now, because why would they if, right. you know, they need to make the most money on every new vehicle they produce since they can't produce as many as they could sell if conditions were correct. So, uh, 
boy, it, it's it's going to be very interesting to see how we kind of transition out of this. And will we start, you know, will there be uh, $20,000 Nissan versus coming back, you know, in volume and, and, you know, that affordable end of the new vehicle market? Is that going to bounce back or yeah, are we permanently looking at a a more premium new car market that, yeah, kind of boxes out the the lower income, average, lower middle class buyer. I don't know. Part of this, it's it's interesting because raising prices is self-sustaining to a small extent, right? If, If you limit the number of new cars to some extent by raising their prices, then you you actually make them more affordable for the people who buy them, the rich people, because the resale value is going to go up because there's going to be more demand on the back end. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, too, this whole horrible cycle is going to make used cars more expensive. Oh, yeah. it already has. Yeah. 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 yeah and it's... if you think about this, too, no matter what happens with the supply chain, we're not going back to a $37,000 car. Right as as the average cost of a, a new car in the United States, average transaction price, it's probably going to be slightly over forty if things ever normalize. So, so yeah, yeah. Affluent, affluent might actually just describe anyone who can afford a new car moving forward. Yeah. Well, I was normal. trying to bum you guys out. Yeah, I know, it's like womp womp, <laughs> Debbie Downer. There, yeah. yeah thanks for that. <laughs> thanks a lot for that, Tom. Well, let me let me let me uh, tell you guys who we've got on the show today. We've got yeah. Max Baumhefner joining us in the second segment. He is senior attorney, uh, climate and clean energy program with the National Resources Defense Council. Yeah. Uh, M- Max is going to be filling us in on. Uh, some of the initiatives and things that NRDC is doing to uh, accelerate uh, the national EV charging infrastructure in America. So that will be an interesting conversation. But first, let's pivot back to what we were, Tom, what you and I were talking about last week now that we have Jill again uh, with that marathon toyota new product intro event last week we've got more stuff to talk about there because baked into that event were the first media drives of the completely redesigned for 2023 toyota sequoia full-size suv and i need to point out here that in in the uh, career lifetime of an auto journalist redesigned Sequoia isn't something you get to say very often. Yeah, that is true. You may say it twice in your career. If yeah. there was, a, it, put it this way: if there was a uh, a baby born when the Sequoia was last redesigned, <laughs> yeah. that that person would be on the cusp of getting their driver's license right now. So there you go. Yeah. Fifteen years ago was the last uh, ground-up Toyota Sequoia redesign. So a long time coming, but uh, I think you could say that Toyota did pull out all the stops with this redesign, and it is uh, as clean sheet as a redesign gets. And as with the previous generation, the new Sequoia cribs a lot of its underpinnings and its uh, uh, powertrain from the Toyota Tundra full-size pickup, which of course was redesigned uh, just last year as a 2022 model. And that is sort of the industry standard for this, right? The Expedition is more or less based on the F-150. The Suburban is more or less based on the uh, uh, the Chevrolet uh, Silverado. That's just sort of how this works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> it's noteworthy yeah. too. It's noteworthy too uh, in choosing to. Uh, the interesting choice Toyota made with the Sequoia's powertrain is that yep. while the Tundra pickup offers both uh, regular uh, gas engine and hybrid uh, powertrains, with the Sequoia, Toyota has elected to offer the hybrid powertrain as standard equipment. So it is interesting. Uh, yep. Yeah, the, it's, it's the, the only. It's the only powertrain, and it's a, a doozy. Uh, it's a uh, excuse me, t- uh, twin turbo 3.5 liter V6 mated with 48 horsepower electric motor and a 1.87 kilowatt nickel metal hydride battery pack. Uh, that arrangement cranks out 437 horsepower and 583 pound feet of torque. So 
uh, a big step up from the previous 381 horsepower uh, 5.7 liter V8 that was in the, the uh, last generation Sequoia. And with the hybrid system, they haven't released EPA uh, economy numbers yet, but it should be a significant fuel economy uh, increase as well. Relatively speaking, you know, it's not going to suddenly be a Prius, obviously, <laughs> but it's no. going to be a heck of a lot better than the 14 mile per gallon uh, combined rating that the old Sequoia got. Yeah, it can yeah. only get better. All right. I've got a question for Jill. Jill, you've driven this. Yes. Okay. So there's the Jeep Wagoneer. Mm -hmm. um, the Chevy Suburban, the Ford Expedition, and now this vehicle redesigned and, and up-teched as it should be. Uh, what For what reason would a shopper gravitate towards the Toyota? Um, well, I, I think we've already touched on one of them, and that's going to be the fuel economy. With the hybrid-only powertrain, Like, I think you're probably going to get 23, 24 miles per gallon combined because that's about where the Tundra um, hybrid is. And... Mm. That I mean, might, so, it might be a little bit high. I think the the tundra, the, the tundra might be that in highway driving, but uh, I think it, it combined. It's about twenty one, and and this is a smaller vehicle than that. Yeah, and and so I mean they they haven't released the numbers, and and um, we didn't do the kind of driving where you could look at it and see what the numbers were because it was like we were doing twenty minute loops. Um, so you're getting in and out of a different vehicle every time you were driving it. Um, but I think that's going to be one of the first things. I think the other thing is going to be overall comfort. Um, the, it, it, and, and I want to say like Tim and I, so my boss and I at pickup truck plus SUV talk, we've done like three videos on this and we did, um, a, a story and we've talked about this a lot and people, the, the, the reception has not been good so far, at least not from our audience. Hmm. Um, but, but this is, this is a much more comfortable driving and, um, sitting vehicle, I think, than, than the other vehicles. And you said Chevy Suburban, Tom, and I think it's more akin to the Tahoe okay. um, than, than the Suburban um, because it doesn't have the extended wheelbase. It's a little bit shorter, um, but the seats are really comfortable in all of the seating positions, and it drives very comfortably. Um, it drives a lot smaller than it feels. So um, I, I did like how it drove. I liked the, the actual comfort. The technology is there. I think the interior design is really nice. The capstone model, which is the top tier trim, is really well appointed. Um, and, and, but one of the big pain points that we found from, from our viewers is the third row and yeah. the cargo area mm -hmm. because it's just a little bit peculiar in how they set that up because of the new um, rear suspension and the battery pack that they had to fit in there. Right. It's 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 the hybrid battery is located underneath the third row seats. Correct, Jill? Yeah. 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 And so there's and like that, a two inch bump. Yeah. Based on the, the pictures that our editor at large, uh, Don Sikora, took on this press event, it looks to be a significant uh uh, you know, when the third row seats are folded, they sit well above the cargo floor itself. And yeah. pretty, pretty, pretty much every other SUV on the market, regardless of size category, has third row seats that fold flat with the cargo yeah. floor. So Toyota has compensated by uh, including a removable cargo shelf that can be set at three different levels, the middle mm -hmm. of which puts it level with that uh the height of the folded third row seats. But again, you're really losing several inches of space beneath that. And that's also raising the liftover height. So if you've got yep. a really heavy item that you've got to hoist into the back, it's not really an ideal solution. I guess a silver lining is that the Sequoia's third row seat slides fore and aft. That's mm -hmm. really an, an exclusive feature that I guess is 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 a, is a benefit. It's it's odd though because most SUVs uh, have a second row seat that's adjustable for an aft. The yeah. Sequoia's seat second row seats are fixed. They don't move at all, other than to flip forward. Uh, you know, to provide a access path to the third row. So, uh, yeah, it's a it's a peculiar setup. Um, 
pluses and minuses. There's a few benefits, I guess, that you, you with the ability to slide that third row seat forward, you will have more cargo room aft of the third row seats when you have to have them all in use, provided those third row passengers are kids, since you're going to lose a lot right. of legroom there. It'll be interesting to see how the market responds to that. So, yeah. Jill, um, one of the things that happened with this, this redesign is that prices went up a lot. Um, even base prices, but there's now the capstone top trim level available. Yep. Uh, in your impression, you drove that, you said it was comfortable, you said it uh, looked nice. Does the capstone feel like it's competitive with something like a Denali or even a, a, an Escalade? You know, I, I, I would say yes-ish. There's one pain point that I found in the vehicle that really bothers me that I don't think is capstone slash Denali worthy, and that is the center tray um, uh -huh. in the armrest. It feels like plastic. And I mean, it is plastic, but it just feels really cheap and chintzy. And, and that is one area that they, that was a complete miss on Toyota's part. You see it in the Tundra as well. And it's like, so basically what it is, is you have this armrest and in the center of the armrest, there's this little drawer that slides so that you can have access to the armrest without uh -huh. opening the full armrest. And it's a clever feature, but the implementation of it was just really, in my opinion, poorly done because it just feels so cheap. And I wish they would have done something a little bit different with that in the capstone model. I mean, even done away with it, and, and that would just upscale the model a lot. But I think the interior is really nice, although I'm not a fan. So the capstone trim, you only have one interior option, and that is um, you have white <laughs> leather accents, um, some of which are on the armrest, which I think could get dirty. Um, but, um, but, but the interior accents are really nice. The large, I think it's like a 14.2-inch screen on the center stack is very attractive. They've done an excellent job with the infotainment system and the um, telematics that are in the vehicle. The digital screen, um, digital display behind the, um, the, the steering wheel, so the gauge cluster is really well done and attractive. And yep. the accent pieces, like, yes, I do think it is on par with you know, the, the upper Lux level, maybe not the Denali Ultimate, um, but, but, you know, my, my boss and I, we were talking and we think that um, Toyota has room to take this even further and add even more luxury. So maybe, maybe there's a capstone ultimate um, coming. You know there is. Right? The, minute they, they've assessed, <laughs> the minute they've assessed demand for capstone, uh, right. and if there's volume there, we're going to see another interior. Uh, right mm -hmm. now, I think they're just trying to limit build permutations until they know how many they're going to build. And then we're going to see a, like a more expensive version. Because as yeah. someone Ford once told me about crossovers and pickup trucks, they can't figure out how to make them expensive enough. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yep. All right. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we talk to the folks at the NRDC. Stick around. Welcome back to the Consumer Guide Car Stuff Podcast. All right, we're back. I am Tom Appel, and this is the Consumer Guide Car Stuff Podcast. Thanks for sticking around today. Hey, this is the part of the show when I strongly suggest that you follow me on Twitter. I am Car Guy Tom. That is car underscore guy underscore Tom on Twitter. I promise to entertain. All right. Our guest today is a senior attorney for climate and clean energy programs at the National Resources Defense Council. Welcome to the Car Stuff Podcast, Max Baumhefner. Max, how are you? I'm doing great, Tom. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for making the time for us today. Do me a favor. Tell us about the NRDC. What is that and what do you guys do? So the NRDC is one of the nation's oldest and most effective environmental advocacy organizations. We're basically here working on every major environmental and public health issue that counts, um, both in the U.S. and internationally. Um, and we've got three million members across the country and we're here trying to make the world a better place 
and you guys, as you noted, you guys have been around for 50 plus years. And, and I think that, that the NRDC has, has sort of traveled in and out of my awareness. And, and it, I guess it depends on what programs you are working on and what you're trying to accomplish at any given time. But uh, you guys are, are a big deal and have gotten a lot done over the years. And I think more people need to check you out. To that end, part of the reason we're talking today is because I did check you guys out. And I found a blog post you wrote, uh, you wrote with a fantastic headline. And I had to share this with everybody. And that is fight fascists and save money, go electric. Uh, that is a very compelling headline. Tell us about that blog post. Yeah, the, you know, I also thought maybe about clip coupons and clip commies or something. But <laughs> you know, in response to the uh, wild fluctuations in the oil price market that precipitated the sell at the pump with gas prices that are at historic highs. So, you know, we, we've been here before. In fact, in, in real dollars, gas prices were similarly high uh, just as recently as 2008. So, you know, I think you're based in Chicago and gas prices out there uh, is average 555 a gallon right now. Out here in California where I'm based, they're uh, 640 a gallon. Ow. And mm-hmm. yeah, it hurts, right? And um, in market contrast, the cost equivalent of driving on electricity on average residential electricity prices in the U.S. on a you know same cent per mile basis expressed in dollar per gallon terms, so that it's an apples to apples comparison. Uh-huh. Driving on electricity for the last 20 years is just north of a buck a gallon gas. And gas has never been that cheap in real dollars, nor will it ever be. And who knows what it's going to be next week, whereas, you know, the price of electricity is stable because it's made from a basket of domestic resources. So you're not just, you know, putting all your eggs in one commodity basket. And unlike the global oil market that nobody regulates, but at the whim of petro dictators and states like Russia, um, the price of electricity is regulated by your Illinois Commerce Commission and every other state utility regulatory commission in the nation. So uh, it's something we can control, and it's a lot cleaner, um, which obviously is, you know, the environmental imperative to electrify our cars, trucks, and buses. Max, when you say that that uh, electricity is cleaner, uh, address this. I hear this all the time from a lot of people, and I never have the right uh, facts set to sort of combat this particular uh, complaint or assertion. And that's that electricity isn't that clean, and that electricity is 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 created from coal in parts of the country, and and ultimately we're not doing that much good. Yeah, yeah, right. This is a, hey, what about the smokestack, smart guy? Your car doesn't have a tailpipe, but, you know, you forgot about the smokestack. Yeah. Well, exactly that. Exactly that attitude. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can guarantee you that um, before NRDC sort of um, decided some years ago that we really were going to start advocating for electrifying the transportation sector, we did our homework. And um, my boss, smart guy, Luke Tonichel, used to run a nuclear reactor on a Navy submarine collaborated with the Electric Power Research Institute, and they wrote an 800-page, three-volume report to answer this question. And they looked not just at the smokestacks, but also the upstream emissions on the gasoline side, the emissions from making the batteries. And the conclusion that I'll save you from reading that 800-page tome is that <laughs> Thank you. Navy's Thank you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're the cleanest vehicles on the road today, even in parts of the grid like where you're situated in Chicago, where it's still heavily dependent on coal. Uh, driving an electric car today emits more than three times less pollution per mile than the average gasoline vehicle. And those emissions benefits will only increase as the grid gets cleaner and cleaner. And you know, Illinois, for example, using your your state, it's got a law in the books that requires its power sector to go to 100% zero emission um, by 2045. So every day you drive an electric car in Illinois and pretty much across the whole U.S., it gets cleaner and cleaner and cleaner, which is 
sort of the opposite of what happens with the typical gas burner. Well, so while we're talking about the the grid and and arguments that people make against electricity, um, can you talk at all about uh, the argument that people use to say that, well, if everybody goes electric, then, you know, the grid can't handle it. We'll have to have rolling blackouts across the United States and, you know, we'll we'll basically um, overuse the electrical grid system and and we, we won't be able to keep up with it. Yeah. So other smart guys looked into that question. <laughs> I like these smart guys, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. We, well, we rely on a basket of them. Um, but this, the, the paper I'll cite right now is uh, done by folks from the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory who estimated that, that there's enough spare capacity in the U.S. electric grid today to power essentially all of our passenger cars and trucks. And that's because the grid is built to accommodate the one hour out of the year when demand for electricity peaks, when everybody's got their air conditioner on and the grid has to meet that peak demand. And what that means is that for every other hour out of the year, it, there's a lot of flack in the system. And that's true basically every day when people are sleeping and they're overnight uh, which, by the way, is often when wind generation peaks, it's a great time to charge cars. So, you know, EV drivers enjoy the convenience of having their car fuel up while they're sleeping, and they wake up to a fully charged car, uh, you know, at a price that's around a dollar a gallon gas or less if they're on time-of-use electricity rates. Um, and what you're doing there is basically taking advantage of a huge machine that we've already bought and paid for in the form of the electric grid. And when you improve the utilization of that asset and you basically, you know, bring in more revenue dollars that would otherwise go to international oil companies and you bring in more money than it costs to serve that new um, load, that new, those EV charging, then you're basically reducing the price per kilowatt hour to the benefit of everything. So, Max, I've got a question about the grid. And and when we deal with the grid or we talk about the grid, it seems like EV naysayers talk about the grid as a monolithic thing that cannot be updated, fixed, or changed. But that can't (laughs) be the case, right? This is a free enterprise situation. There are power companies that make money, like to turn profits, and like to return money to shareholders. Why is it that we treat the grid as something that can't be upgraded or updated, or can it not be for some reason? I mean, the grid is... is more of a living organism than, you know, a, a single appliance. It's in a constant state of being upgraded. Um, and the power sector, just in the last, you know, 10 years or so, its environmental performance has increased significantly. And the path that we're on is a great trajectory towards a zero emission power sector. And uh, along the way, um, that means the grid does have to evolve to become more dynamic and to, you know, take advantage of things like the big batteries on wheels that electric cars and trucks represent and, you know, use the flexibility that they have to charge when the wind is blowing hardest, when the sun is shining most and soak up some of that renewable energy when it's plentiful. The electric vehicles are really a complement to helping the grid evolve in a way that it it needs to. Um, and you know, a few years ago, um, because largely the grid was getting cleaner and cleaner, the power sector no longer held the title of the largest source of pollution in this country. It's the transportation oh. sector. Yeah, it's our you know, and that's predominantly cars and trucks and. Um, the good news, though, is that we can use that increasingly clean grid to clean up the transportation sector, and that's the job at hand. Yeah, I, you know, from an EV new product standpoint, this is the 
past couple years have been a particularly exciting time with some remarkable new vehicles coming out. Uh, all of us here, Tom, Jill, and I have driven the Ford F-150 Lightning, and like most auto journalists, we're blown away with how good it is. So the product is is really coming into its own now in terms of EVs, but it certainly seems that as a country, we have a long way to go on bringing that full infrastructure, uh, public charging infra infrastructure up to snuff. Uh, what do you advocate? What's your vision for the best way to move forward with that? Is it uh, Biden administration incentives? Is it predominantly uh, private investment or some combination of the two? It's definitely a combination. In fact, um, NRDC helped launch the national EV charging initiative. It was really a, a large um, partnership between public advocates, public interest groups, public health groups, organized labor, EV charging companies, automakers, utilities, et cetera, to basically tell President Biden, like, hey, we're here to see your half a million charging stations and raise you by a million. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's what it's going to take. And, you know, the, the $5 billion that's coming out of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that uh, turns into the National EV Charging Infrastructure Program that the feds are rolling in now and the states will implement. It's, it's a historic investment, but, you know, it's really not sufficient to get the job done, and it really does need to catalyze additional, you know, public, state, utility, and private investments to provide Americans with the assurance that they need that they can drive anywhere they want to. I mean... That's already largely the case. It's just most folks aren't really aware. And, you know, the, the good news is we don't have to just replicate the gas station network because the vast majority of your refueling happens at home, which is a huge advantage. And you know, I think that gets it. lost a lot in this argument. That's a very important part. Yeah. Yeah, you don't, I mean, you need the public charging for the occasional inner city trip and um, long distance trip. But, you know, the average American drives something like 27 miles a day, which you could meet that using a standard household wall outlet. And if you've got a plug-in hybrid, like I did in the first generation Chevy Volt, you know, uh -huh. we just ran an extension cord out of our little apartment window and, and charged <laughs> up right yeah. now and met all of our daily needs. Now, I have to, I'll tell the folks from GM who might be listening that I was using a contractor-grade extension cord. Not <laughs> sure you were. Safety, safety first. <laughs> That's right. So, Max, personal question. Are you currently driving an EV yourself? And, and in doing so, have you uh, done any long-distance travel? And what were your experiences with public charging? Yeah, so... My wife gets to drive the EV most of the time. I'm stuck in the gas burning Prius, um, which, you know, I'm just, I'm waiting to get my hands on something like the Mississippi <laughs> Lightning that you all got to test drive uh, and my old lawnmower. Um, but yeah, we have done inner city trips and, um, you know, it's, it, it's remarkably doable, especially if you have, um, one of the newer vehicles that can charge at higher power rates. And, you know, the first EVs that hit the market about 10 years ago, what we called fast charging then really wasn't that fast. It was, right. uh, you know, 50 kilowatts for the um, power nerds out here. Now we're talking 350 kilowatts. And I think one of your previous episodes had Jonathan Levy for me to go and, you know, they're, they're rolling out 350 kilowatts and that can get you back out on the road with, you know, a 300 mile or so charge and, you know, more like the time it would take you to go get a coffee and use the restroom as opposed to the way it used to be, you know, like you better pack a picnic lunch and wait a little while longer. So if the charging infrastructure is there, it's, you know, much, we're getting much closer to that gas station road trip experience. Um, but we obviously do need more of them, and that's what some of those investments that are coming out of the infrastructure law will help help spur. 
Max, we are running out of time, but if you could, tell us a little bit more about the NRDC, how we can follow what they're doing, and how we can tra- uh, keep track of what you're doing. Yeah, so, I mean, NRDC, uh, three million member organization uh, founded by lawyers who um, helped write some of our nation's bedrock environmental laws, and we work on, you know, essentially every environmental public health uh, equity and justice issue that uh, improves the lives of people here and across the world. And uh, I feel incredibly honored to be part of this organization. There's a lot of unhappy lawyers in this world, and I'm glad to not count myself amongst them. <laughs> you know, this is meaningful work, and I get to work with a lot of smart folks like we talked about. Um, so I'm proud be a part of it and i would encourage folks to yeah, go to nrdc.org and check out what we do um we're trying to make the world a you know a better cleaner place for our kids and for every living thing out there sounds good and we can check out your blog at nrdc.org backslash experts correct yeah and uh if you can you know if you start googling max baumeffner you don't have to complete the whole last name before. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Max, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Excellent. That was Max Baumhefner with the NRDC. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, it's quiz time. Stick around. Welcome back to the Consumer Guide Car Stuff Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Consumer Guide Car Stuff Podcast. Thanks for hanging around today. Hey, Jill. Hey, yeah. You've been gone for like nine weeks or something. People may have forgotten (laughs) that you do social media stuff. Uh, Refresh our memories. First off, how could anybody forget that I do social media stuff? Um, no one, no <laughs> one actually can. No one can. No, no one, no one. Um, but uh, if you did, you can find me at Jill Simonello. So my name, all one word, J-I-L-L-C-I-M-I-N-I-L-L-O. Um, and I'm on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, all the usual suspected places. Um, and I uh, tweet about, write about, post about the car that I'm driving at the moment. So I, I hashtag it car du jour. So uh, if you're ever curious about what I'm driving, you just check in on the car du jour hashtag and you'll find me wherever you are. There you go. Hey, Damon, mm-hmm. you're on Twitch and Substack. Uh, tell us about that. <laughs> Those are actually legitimate things. Yes. I, I don't and know I, what Substack is, actually. I, I think Substack is like kind of an independent uh editorial writers outlet oh is it okay yeah yeah there's uh, i don't have my head fully around the the format but there are some a-list uh journalists that are now on substack it's kind of an oh okay platform yeah all right so legit and then twitch yeah. is like a gamer thing right for video games yes which yeah, i okay. which i need to steer clear of yeah yeah all right i don't like so, seem old see i know hip things yeah yeah or at least the names of those things <laughs> if, not the, if not the details of them uh yeah not on twitter or, i'm sorry not on twitch not on substack i am on twitter at damon bell likes cars All right. Sounds good. Hey, it's quiz time, boys and girls. And I've got a fun topic for you today. Fake trim levels again. I'm going back to this well because it's a good well to go back to. It is a good well. All right. Jill, you've been gone for a long time, so you go first today. Jill, Mm. which is the fake Buick Encore GX trim level? That is Buick subcompact crossover. Is it premium? or preferred which is the fake golly i don't do a lot of i haven't driven a lot of buicks recently and i definitely haven't driven the new gx um i'm gonna say premium is the fake yep all right damon this question goes to you one of these is fake for the buick encore gx premium or preferred I think I got to agree with Jill because I have a memory of 
seen preferred listed as a Buick trim level. Before I reveal the answer, I just want to point out that the Buick Encore GX is also Buick's first three-cylinder vehicle. How weird is that? Mm. Anyway, you both get a point. Premium is the fake. All right. Woohoo! We're both on the board. Jill, Damon, both on the board. Uh, the lineup is preferred, select, and essence. So there you go. Mm. Essence. Essence. Damon, this goes to you. Which is the fake Lincoln Corsair trim level? Reserve or touring? Mm. Right? Good good question, right? They both seem real. Oh, that that's a tough one. Yeah. I think I think I'm going to say touring is the fake. Touring's the fake? Jill, this goes to you. Reserve or touring? One is a fake Lincoln Corsair trim level. I'm actually going to agree with Damon because I believe it's Grand Touring, not Touring is the trim. So I, I'm going to say Touring is the fake. Nice job. You're both correct. Yes. Yeah, no Touring. It's uh, Standard, Reserve, and Grand Touring, as Jill noted. It is two to two. Anyone's oh. game question goes to Jill. Jill, All right. which is the fake Mercedes-Benz GLB trim level? Oh, now you got me. Uh, ready? AMG yep. GLB 35 or AMG GLB 45? Oh, good God. Um, <laughs> I yeah. you, you're just mean. Um, I'm going to say, I, I have no clue because I know I've, I've never driven the GLB. Um, and the, this alphanumeric mumbo jumbo drives me nuts. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to say 45. Is the fake? Yep. Okay. Damon, this question goes to you. GLB 35 or GLB 45? Mm. God, that's a smaller... Jill said... Which one did you say was the fake, Jill? 45. I'm probably going to sabotage myself, but just to make it interesting, I'll disagree with Jill. You have sabotaged yourself, sir. Drat. It is 35. The AMG GLB 35 is still a 2-liter turbo, but it goes from 221 to 302 horsepower. Uh, the GLB lineup is 250, 250 4Matic, and AMG 35. Jill moves ahead with three. It's three to two in favor of Jill. Damon, this question goes to you. Uh, Damon, which is the fake Audi Q5? That is Audi's second smallest crossover very likable car is it the premium plus or the luxury which is the fake i will say luxury is the fake he sounds pretty sure jill what do you think premium plus or luxury yeah i feel like luxury is all is the fake all right you're both going with luxury yes Jill, you are on the verge of a sweep. It is four to three. Ooh. Luxury is correct. Uh, the lineup is premium, premium plus, and prestige. And then each trim level is available in 40 and 45 or 55 uh, performance levels. It's very confusing. You need a chart. <laughs> All the German manufacturers, you need a chart. All right. Uh, Jill, last question goes to you. Jill, Mercedes-Benz EQS, that's their oh. big flagship luxury sedan. Which is the fake trim level? Is it EQS 450 plus or EQS 500E? Which is fake? Oh, man. Um, yeah. Uh, so I would, I, I, I feel like I have the no whammies, no whammies, no whammies going through my head right now. Uh -huh. um, Does that hurt? So... <laughs> it does. It actually really hurts. Um, I, would, I so, would imagine it would keep your husband up. <laughs> no, nothing keeps my husband up. He is a solid oh. sleeper. Um, let's see. So you said, what, what, what were the two options? EQS 450 plus or EQS 500E. So I, if I recall correctly, because I've not driven the EQS either. So this is their all electric vehicle, right? EQ, yep. This is their, their electric flagship. Um, and so to me, it's like, are they going with the plus structure or the E structure? Because whenever BMW has a, an electric vehicle, they put the E at the end. But, uh -huh. you know, when you have Lexus and they have their plug-in hybrid, they put the plus at the end. Um, 
Oh, golly. Um, e plus, E plus, which is it? Um, I'm going to go with plus. You're going plus. with plus. Wait, wait, wait. No, plus is the real. I'm going to say E is the fake. Oh, so you're saying EQS 500E is the fake. Correct. All right, Damon, this question goes to you. EQS 450 plus or EQS 500E, one of those is fake. Uh, I think that this dooms me to second place, but I got to agree with Jill. I don't, I think the E in this case is sort of redundant. So I would say the E is the fake trim level. Well, you're both correct, which means Jill has swept. What? First swept of the year, five to four. You both did nicely. The uh, EQS lineup is 450 plus and 580 formatic. Those are the two versions of that vehicle right now. Uh, Jill has won, but we go to the bonus round because that's what we do. Damon, this question <laughs> goes to you first. Damon, according to a December 2021 Mashed article, one of the following fast food restaurants serves the worst French fries. Which is yeah. it? Are you ready? Mm, sorry, what did you say? The mash? <coughs> mashed. Mashed.com. What is mashed.com? Uh, it is a place that does articles about worst French fries. <laughs> oh, that <laughs> and potatoes. You what, know, a specialized, potatoes what a specialized website. Okay. okay. I think you'd be shocked how little research I did into this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Which are the worst? Are you ready? Johnny Rockets, Shake Shack, Dairy Queen, or White Castle? One of those has the worst French fries. Johnny Rockets and Shake Shack are both upscale. Those those are kind of borderline not fast food, so I'm gonna nix those. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna zero in on uh, Dairy Queen. I'm gonna say those are the worst fries. All right, Jill. This question goes to you. Johnny Rockets, Shake Shack, DQ, or White Castle? Worst French fries. Man, that's such a subjective thing because it depends on whether you like soggy french fries or crispy french fries. Um, but who would want soggy french fries? Um, I haven't had Johnny Rockets or Shake Shack french fries, but I seem to recall really liking the Dairy Queen ones. And um, the um, White Castle. Uh, oh, man. I'll go with, yeah. I know, White Castle. I'm going with White Castle. Jill, you have swept, swept. White Castle indeed came in 23rd out of 23 restaurants. Wow. Worst oh. french fries, yeah. I, mean, I, don't, I, don't, I don't trust the folks at mash.com. <laughs> the, others were the, the others were the other three worst. So Johnny Rockets came in 20th worst. place, Shake Shack at 21st, Dairy Queen at 22nd, and White Castle in 23rd place. Ouch, so we that's may a, need to do it taste test yeah i think i agree boy that's a huge black that's a huge black eye for shake shack because they're like a yeah that's a very pricey chain for burgers it seems to be cool now to sort of slam shake shack hmm. <laughs> but uh guess guess what uh, fast food restaurant came in first mcdonald's that would be my guess too well you're both correct all right mm. hey damon <laughs> yes Enough of this crispy potato madness. Uh, what's going on at the CG Daily Drive blog? I think there can never be enough crispy potato madness. Yeah, I'm thinking about lunch right now. We have like yeah. six minutes before lunch. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We've got lots of great stuff on the blog this week. Yeah, just hurry uh, up. I'm hungry. Okay, I'll, I'll go quickly. Uh, <laughs> lots Again, uh, man, lots of new product and future product news being uh, trickled out uh, in the yeah. recent weeks. Um, last week, Buick made some big announcements. It was overshadowed in some ways by the uh, all the Toyota news, but there were some mm. uh, significant uh, announcements from Buick. Uh, that is, I guess, not particularly surprisingly, they are transitioning to an all-EV brand, uh, I believe. Go by figure. 20, by 2030. Yeah. Uh, they're bringing back a vintage name from the brand's past to denote its their electric vehicles. That, not surprisingly, is Electra. Uh Perfect uh, name from the Buick's past to apply to electric vehicles. Um, and also they showed what I would consider to be a real teaser of a concept in more ways than one. They showed a very sexy, low-slung 
two-door coupe concept called the Wildcat EV, but Buick doesn't make passenger cars anymore. They're strictly an EV, uh, strictly an SUV brand. So it really is kind of a, a tease to see this gorgeous traditional passenger car that basically has a snowball's chance of actually seeing the light of day as a production vehicle. We'll see the design uh, cues it exhibits mm-hmm. show up on future Buick production vehicles, but those are going to be SUVs and not passenger cars. Do you think there's any chance at all they build this thing for the Chinese market? Actually, yes. For the Chinese market, I could see that being a fairly likely thing, but we'll have to be envious of it from afar here in North America. (laughs) So if you're really cool in North America, you would import one. You would gray market one, and you couldn't (laughs) drive it legally, but you'd still show up at car shows. Uh... I could think of better uses for the money it would take to do that, but yes, I suppose conceivably you could do that. All right, all right. Just yeah. so, just so I know I can do it. Yes. <laughs> uh, we've also got our, as we talked about in the first segment, we've got our full first spin report on that redesign for 2023 Toyota Sequoia. So you can get the full scoop on uh, our first test drive experience with that. Uh, from a vintage standpoint, uh, speaking of uh, the vanishing traditional passenger car, Tom, you did an article uh, showcasing a number of ads of sedans from 1980. Uh, doesn't feel like that long ago, but it's ages ago in terms of car design. So mm-hmm. it kind of freaks me out that the, those officially qualify as uh, vintage vehicles now, but here we are. Yeah, And finally, uh, we've got our full test drive review of uh, another important new EV for 2022, and that's the Hyundai Ioniq 5. Which is a mind-blowingly good vehicle. Yes. Avant-garde from a styling standpoint, um, uh, surprisingly practical in day-to-day use. And the vehicle we had was uh, an all-wheel drive model which uh, gets you a higher horsepower uh, dual electric motor. It's a 320 horsepower setup, uh, surprisingly quick and snappy uh, on the acceleration front. Driving that car for me, even more than the Ford F-150 Lightning, sort of made it clear to me that the EV future is is absolutely going to happen, and it's going to be pretty cool. Agreed. Yeah. All right, we, we are running out of time here. Real quick, just everyone's reaction to the weird thing that came out of Toyota last week, uh, a Corolla all-wheel drive. Does that seem strange to you? No. No? No. I'm happy, to, yeah, I'm happy to see them, I think as you touched upon last week, Tom, I'm happy to see them putting that kind of effort into uh, their traditional compact car. I agree. Pretty cool. It's weird, I think, because the volume may not be there, but I'm glad they're doing it. All right. Thanks, guys. I think that was a fun show. Thanks to Max Baumhefner of the NRDC. We'll have to have him back on the show. Thanks to producer Lady B and everyone here at WCPT AM 820 in Chicago. Thanks for making us sound good, or at least reasonably good. As always, thanks to our radio mentors, Steve and Johnny. Remember to follow the Car Stuff Podcast and Consumer Guide on Facebook. Uh, Facebook. If you have questions or comments, drop us line at carstuff at consumerguide.com that is carstuff at consumerguide.com hey let's talk more about cars again next week